Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the show. Now, the war in Ukraine obviously has been taking place for many, many months now. And in the initial phases of the war, that was basically all, well, the, the media was talking about. It was it dominated uh, the news cycles for fairly obvious reasons. The biggest war in Europe since World War II, a massive land invasion um, by Russia of Ukraine. And, and, and it should be said, uh, an illegal and criminal and brutal occupation, uh, which then followed. Now, we haven't spoken about it ourselves uh we haven't done anything on the show for for quite a while and i think part of the reason for that is it is a grinding stalemate or does appear to be a grinding stalemate of course we will talk about that with someone who actually knows what they're talking about um and also other issues have surpassed it i mean ironically i suppose the fact that we're suffering a catastrophic collapse in living standards in the west but of course that's interlinked with what's happening in ukraine Nonetheless, the war continues, of course. Uh, thousands of people have died in this war. It is a pretty gruesome war by any uh, definition. We'll talk uh, about to bring in, of course, the brilliant, and we've had him on before, obviously, for because he's he's, he's, he's the best you're going to get, the Emeritus Professor for Peace Studies, Paul Rogers. But before we do, let's just have a little look at what the MOD, for example, pinch of salt, it's the Ministry of Defence, but we'll talk about what they've actually said and see what Paul Rogers thinks. Uh, saying that, you know, this is the, this is today's update, 20th of August. The last week has only seen minimal changes in territorial control along the front line. Um, in the southwest, um, neither Ukrainian or Russian forces have made advances on the Kherson front line, and, they, and it's unlikely the situation will significantly change in the next week. Um, there's been, if we just look at this, the um, this is what's happened in the... I think it was yesterday. This is the Black Sea Navy HQ in Crimea, where a drone was launched, which exploded on the roof. Um, if you're watching uh, live, uh, sorry, this is a very impromptu show. We've only got our act together uh, to do this properly this morning because we weren't sure whether we're doing it today or tomorrow. Obviously, we normally do this on a Sunday, so... Sorry for just launching this uh, with no build-up, but hello. <laughs> uh, but press like and subscribe. Um, and uh, if you're watching live on Facebook, watch. If you could click on the YouTube link, that'd be great. And press like and subscribe. But let's bring in the brilliant Emeritus Professor, Paul Rogers. Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing? Hello, Owen. Very well. And uh, I should say nice to be back. But since we talk about this subject, it's not that nice. But anyway, <laughs> I'll do my best to bring you up to date. It's not that nice, no. Uh, you've done this brilliant new article, actually, which has gone up on open democracy. As the Ukraine war drags on, a grain export deal could be a sign of hope. Uh, many obstacles stand in the way of negotiating peace in Ukraine, but shoots of diplomatic pragmatism may be emerging. We'll talk about that in terms of the article. Could you just explain, you know, the last time we had you on, I think it was probably about three months ago. And it does feel as though, because obviously, I think everyone knows, in you know the kind of brief overview of what happened you had a sudden invasion back in february any attempt at a lightning strike with the capital failed um and then 
the Russian forces took away their troops away from the area around Kiev and focused on the Donbass region where they did make advances, but now it seems to be a stalemate. So just tell us what is going, what's been happening in the last few months and, and what's the state of play in kind of the grand scheme of things? I think one way and another, uh, it's best described as a violent stalemate. And five of the six months have been really like that. There was huge activity at the start. Um, the Russians, or Putin particularly, I don't, very few of the Russian people, I suspect, but the Putin and people around him, uh, they saw the possibility of saying, basically getting rid of the Ukraine government and replacing it with a government to their liking. That's part of a, of a sort of a policy of extending Russian influence back towards NATO. Um, that did not work. Uh, they failed to take Kyiv. The first 36 hours were crucial in this. And eventually they had to withdraw from a lot of the territory, as you said, in the north. So the secondary aim was absolutely to hold on to Crimea and to expand uh, the reach of the, what you might call the secessionist areas in the Donbass, um, Donetsk and Ukansi, two oblasts which form a large part of that, those are both sort of separatist regimes that have been for some time, with a lot of conflict going on between Ukraine and the people there, supported the latter by the Russians very much. So it's really consolidating and extending that. And in recent weeks, the Russian, recent months, in fact, uh, the Russian army has concentrated on that. Uh, so really, the Ukrainians seem to make a lot of progress at the start. Uh, the Russians reinforced and brought a lot more forces in and used their huge artillery advantages to very considerable effect and also used many of their longer range missiles to hit towns without any warning. And overall, although yes, you're absolutely right, it is a stalemate, we're still seeing hundreds of people killed every week, possibly some weeks, it may even be thousands. Nobody really knows the total casualties. Um, an educated guess, if I can use that odd term, is probably getting on for 100,000 people killed in the last six months. Uh, most of those, the largest proportion of those, will actually be Russian soldiers, probably followed by Ukrainian civilians, uh, essentially followed also by uh, Ukrainians who may be pro-Russia in the Donbass region. So it's a very bloody affair. Um, Russia seemed to make a lot of progress in eastern and southern Ukraine, but they've been pushed back a lot more recently, or at least their progress has been stopped, mainly by the effectiveness of the Ukrainian army, but much more so by the equipment which they've been receiving from a range of NATO countries, principally the United States, to some extent Britain, and quite a lot of Eastern European countries as well. Uh, as well. Recently, you're actually seeing a lot of Ukrainian soldiers being trained overseas, including in Britain on the latest equipment, the latest weapons. And in a sense, it's quite indicative that Ukraine feels under sufficient low pressure to be able to send those people for further training, because obviously they will be some of their best infantry who are doing this. Now that combines with some of the new weapons that NATO has provided, uh, particularly the so-called HIMARS, which is a, a long range, but very accurate multiple launch rocket system. Uh, more long range and more accurate than anything the Russians have, and certainly much more than the Ukrainians have before. And this explains a lot how the Ukrainians have been able to attack Russian command centers, supply lines, and particularly logistics camps, arms dumps, in quite deep into, for example, um, Crimea. And that really is, think, to some extent, undermining the Russian position. The stalemate continues. 
Uh, we might talk later about some of the minor breakthroughs, the overnight news that it may be possible for the UN to get inspectors into that huge nuclear plant. And we actually see grain exports starting again. But ultimately, I think the key thing about this is it's very unusual in war terms. This is a conflict that neither side can win. And the point about this is the Russians can make big progress, but now that NATO is so heavily involved, it will be damning for its own position in the world if Russia succeeded. Therefore, if Russia makes progress, uh, NATO will just pump more and more weapons and equipment and more intelligence support into Ukraine. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians uh, succeed more and they're starting to at present, then the reality is uh, that Russia could always have the option of at least threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons. So this is a conflict, uh, very grievous, very harmful, which has to be sorted out at some stage by negotiation, but I'm afraid there isn't any, isn't any prospect at the moment, as far as one can see, except maybe one or two pointers here and there. Before I ask you about that stalemate, and that's quite a disturbing proposition because it does suggest basically there's no way, pot, as you say, basically it's, it's politically impossible for Putin not to, to lose this war. The survival of his regime depends on it. But if Ukraine starts losing badly, then the West will simply tip the balance further in their favour. So you just so so in terms of just the Russian losses, I'm just so struck by that. I mean, a hundred thousand dead. Obviously, we're not talking about Russian soldiers. We're talking about the overall fatalities is 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 genuinely catastrophic in such a short period of time. I mean, I think in the Bosnian war over three years, about 100,000 people died, but we're talking here in, in, in a matter of five months, um, or four, uh, sorry, more than that, seven, nonetheless, seven months, it's still a, a, a huge loss of life. How does the Russian, I don't understand how the Russian army has sustained this, given you don't have a mass conscript army and still remained a military power in Ukraine. I mean, it's just such a devastating loss of, of its own troops. Well, Russia does actually have a conscript army. Most Russians, if they can't get out of it one way or another, do a year of military service and then have to go back occasionally. The level of training is pretty low, and the raw troops, so to speak, the trained troops, uh, are not up to standards of Western troops. Um, the Russian losses in terms of people killed, we simply don't know, probably about forty to 50,000 actual troops, but at least that many seriously injured. Uh, Russia can hold on to it, it has plenty of reserves, but Putin has been very reluctant to go for full-scale war mobilization. But obviously, he's been saying this is not a war. This is a sort of a local military operation. And to actually call everybody up as Russia could do uh, would be very difficult if he's trying to do that aim. But the losses are considerable. I think it's true to say that within Russia, there is still this belief that the war can be won, at least among older Russians. Uh, the younger you get in Russia, as far as you can tell, and I have reasonably good links, you actually find that younger people are much more cautious. But the reality is that the Russian security services and the police do have things very much buttoned down. And essentially, essentially it's very dangerous to sort of oppose um, the conflict, even to use the term war. Now, the one point about this is, I mean, the Russian losses have already been uh, probably more than all the losses in Afghanistan between 1980 and 1988, when Gorbachev was eventually forced to withdraw. And essentially, he withdrew partly because of what was said to be um, the Russian mothers of those killed. And that became sort of a major issue. We don't know where that's becoming a major issue new. Now, one suspects it probably was, because of course, in Gorbachev's time, this is a period when he was trying to open things up. There was so-called glasnost, 
more towards the transparency. And so it became much more common knowledge and shared knowledge uh, that the losses were high. That may well be happening now. There are other big unknowns. Some reports from reasonably independent Western econo econo economic analysts are saying that, in fact, the Russian economy is being very badly hit, but the Kremlin has sufficiently things sufficiently under control to sort of really present a different picture. So there's a lot of unknowns there, but you do come back to the fact it's possible that at some stage it becomes almost untenable internally. And at mm -hmm. that stage, even the people close to Putin will be much more anxious for some sort of negotiated settlement. But we're not there yet. And mostly, as far as one can see, it's a degree of repression of dissent which is presenting that coming out in the open at the present time. I know I'm being very cautious, but there's so much that isn't clear at present. Uh, mm -hmm. All you can say is the losses have been very high and they're not getting any smaller by the week at present. Because you mentioned the economy, David Barratter asks on Super Chat, a lot of people in the media have been talking about the total collapse of the Russian economy at the start of this war. How has their economy been so resilient and how much longer can it last? Will Western sanctions last? I mean, you thought there were actually suggestions could be the economy's been hit actually more than appears. But what, what's your general take on that in terms of the economic? I think the two things to remember, uh, although Russia has a large element of sort of entrepreneurship, I mean, you have the oligarchs and the rest, it is also an economy which actually could be controlled pretty strongly from the center. But the other much bigger reason is simply oil, oil and gas, that Russia is still a major exporter. And although there may be many issues with Western Europe, those issues don't arise with say, China or indeed India. And one has to remember always about this war, that the perceptions of the war vary hugely across the world. For the Western communities, if you like, say the North Atlantic countries, this is a clear war of the good guys versus the bad guys. That is simply not how it is seen across much of the global south, where it's a little bit of plague on both your houses. No great love for Putin, let's be clear. But if you've been through the colonization period, if you're in the Middle East and you know people or yourself have experienced the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Northern Africa, mm -hmm. Libya, uh, all done by the West with far greater civilian death tolls, you see it differently. That's very difficult to get across in Britain. But that means that Russia is not alone and economically, it does still have the oil and gas. But that's not to say there aren't major problems developing. And this is one why one has to be cautious. So far, the Russian economy has held up. That might not last long, but I would hate to predict when it might change. Um, in terms of just talking about that military situation, I mean, you, you met, we're talking about Western arms for Ukraine, but actually now they've got long range rocket attacks. And we've just shown there a, a drone attack in, in Crimea, which obviously was annexed by Russia back in 2014 and president zelensky is actually now talking about reclaiming not just the territory which has been taken by the russian occupiers since this year but even crimea i mean it, is this a sign of genuine kind of you know is there's, there's a basis for that bullishness or is this just kind of a domestic kind of rallying public opinion i think it's probably more the latter i mean the Ukrainian armed forces have actually performed in purely military terms very competently. They proved themselves time again. Uh, but essentially, I think, obviously, Zelensky has to make this kind of point. The reality, I think, the brutal reality is that Ukraine, Ukraine privately would be prepared to negotiate even on the status of Crimea and the status of parts of the Donbass. And there are all kinds of ways in which you could sort of make suggestions and offers 
It's, I mean, track two diplomacy, when you have people speaking unofficially to each other, but with the knowledge of those higher up on each side, is probably the way to go. And that's happened in many, many conflicts over the last 30, 40 years, sometimes with considerable success. And so what Zelensky will say in public is fair enough. It's to boost morale. Uh, the reality is that if we suddenly found the Russians were prepared to negotiate at least or engage tentatively, Ukraine would be willing to make concessions. That's the reality, not least with, you know, some low millions of Ukrainians who still support Russia. Many of them are no longer in Ukraine. They've gone to Russia, but they're still there. And that's part of the harsh reality in the rest. In spite of all the things that Putin has done, all the killings, uh, there can still be a negotiated settlement because, as I said at the start, there isn't really any alternative to this. In terms of realistic Russian military aims right now, um, given there is a stalemate and given the reality of Western arms mean that if, for example, the Russians managed uh, a successful escalation and offensive and started seeming to menace significant chunks of further Ukrainian territory, they just tip the balance. What do you think? I mean... They have taken, obviously, they have taken significant portions of eastern Ukraine. But do you think they might end up, you know, calling their losses, settling on basically the Donbass region? I mean, is that is that likely and, and just annexing that and then just that will be their that would be then declare victory? Well, they've already annexed Ukraine. Uh, sorry, point Donbass, is there. Yeah, uh, they've yeah. already annexed uh, Crimea. And they've recognized those two oblasts in the Donbass, and they could go the whole hog and basically annex the whole area that they've taken, even in the areas where they don't have full control. Um, that, I think, would just be their negotiating point, and they could be pushed back a lot. Uh, but there are all kinds of other ways that, you know, when you get really skillful negotiators and mediators, and some people in the UN are incredibly good at this, then there are ways forward in terms of political organization following a peace deal. And the reality is when you start getting even local ceasefires, that is when you start to get the breakthrough. We're not getting that yet. But at the same time, uh, the fact that the grain deals have gone through uh, and you do actually have grain ships um, leaving ports, as well, two left just this morning, I think, in a port just south of uh, Odessa, and they're now getting through by agreement and as I understand it, there's a kind of four-party agreement involving personnel from each side. That involves the Turks, the Ukraines, UN personnel, and Russia. So actually, Russia is engaged at present in that one area. Now, you can argue, perhaps cynically, perhaps accurately, that Putin has realized that by blocking all grain supplies, he's going to lose kudos among his allies, at least his neutral people in the global south. Because obviously... If there's even bigger and bigger food problems across the global south, then people who might have been, if not sympathetic to Russia, basically neutral, uh, will be getting very uppity. And one noticed that Lavrov, the foreign minister, made a major trip to Egypt just two or three days ago, probably for that purpose. One thing to add here, I know this is beyond what we can talk about now. If you get full grain exports and sunflower oil exports and the rest from Ukraine, that will not solve the world grain crisis. That was already developing, and this is just making it worse. It's been developing for seven, eight years. It's another very big topic, and it's been made much worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. So essentially, it will help, but it will make not much more than a dent. But at least it's better than nothing. And also, it's a sign 
that Russia and Ukraine can negotiate on issues. Now, I don't know whether this overnight news that Macron seems to have done persuaded Putin to agree to inspectors going into the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. If that comes about, that's another possible indication. They're very early indications, but at least it's better than the almost complete absence of engagement we've had now for about four months or so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In terms of Western strategy, I mean, you wrote in this brilliant piece, which people should read in Open Democracy, that the hawks in the West, especially in the United States, see the war as an extraordinary opportunity to cripple the Russian economy for a generation, freeing Washington to face up to its real enemy, uh, China. Um, and obviously, you know, there was some, I mean, I suppose the real politique kind of faction, the kind of Kissinger lot, their worry about the position vis-a-vis Russia was actually you'll end up with Russia as a junior partner in the Chinese orbit, and that will consolidate that power block as a, as a rival to US hegemony. Um, but you wrote about the shades of the hawkish attitudes of the influential John Birch Society, which were this kind of very staunch anti-communist uh, movement in the US, and other right-wing groups, the height of the Cold War, and that was kind of spending the Soviets in early graves. The idea is you just throw lots of military resources at Ukraine, forcing Russia to try and redress the balance by spending lots and lots of money um, on its own armed forces, but because the Russian economy is far weaker, that will end up basically dis- destroying the Russian economy and therefore perhaps toppling the Putin regime and weakening Russia. I suppose, I'm just wondering about that in terms of how strong do you think the, those factions are? I mean, Joe Biden's, you know, we, we saw what happened in Afghanistan, obviously withdrew there and actually has had a less hawkish foreign policy than than than, than Obama, who he served under. But are those hawks, do you think, quite powerful and do you think they are guiding a lot of policy? I don't know about guiding a lot of policy as opinion formers. Yes, they are pretty, pretty strong. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the whole of the Cold War, almost the whole of the Cold War, it's in fact all the Cold War period. And essentially during the late 70s and early 80s, particularly under Reagan, there was this very strong view that the way to face the whole Soviet bloc was to spend it into an early grave. And in fact, one of the things, one of the achievements of Gorbachev, uh, with some very bright people advising him after 1985, was to recognize that Russia would indeed be spent into an early grave. And this is one of the reasons why you had the perestroika, the restructuring of the glasnost, the more openness, to try and do this. He only succeeded in part because the whole thing started to come apart. But that was clearly the attitude of people, people in High Frontier, John Birch Society and others in Washington. Now, they are pretty significant now. And one has to add to that, and this does not just involve the United States, that um, this is a period which is very good for the military-industrial complexes. 
to some extent in Russia even, certainly in China, but absolutely in the Western countries. I cited that argument, uh, article, a huge new deal that Poland has just done with South Korea for a whole range of new warplanes to replace its old Soviet stock, which is frankly obsolete. And that was, I think, something like 14 billion equivalent US dollars on this. And that is happening right across the board. It's a good time to be in the arms industries. Um, basically, uh, a former colleague of Bradford, Sean Howard, who I think writes beautiful stuff. Uh, Google him at the, was it the Cape Breton Spectator? He writes for that journal. He's in Canada now once a month. He wrote a piece just last month and he pointed out, I remember the phrase, basically making a killing can be so much easier than making peace. Mm. And in the short term, it may work for the arms industries. In the long term, we're all the, we're all the victims. Uh, but that, I think, is a very strong element. Now, as I say, this is not just the United States. You'll have exactly the same thing in Russia. You will have the arms people saying to the Kremlin, we must have this new equipment. You must more, spend more money on the rest. You'll have India wondering about its old Russian equipment. You'll have China watching it with a, uh, with a basically a, a fine tooth comb to make sure that they understand what's going on. And the other aspect of this is that the United States is involved in all kinds of ways. It has CIA personnel, obviously, in Ukraine. Um, it is involved hugely in sharing, uh, basically, um, intelligence. And right throughout this, as the new equipment is used, uh, the United States war machine, and to extent the British, is learning every day how to fight a war against a major enemy. It's a mm. proxy war, they say, but that's not the reality. So there's a learning process here. And I think for NATO as a whole, it's a good time to be around after the terrible mess they made of Afghanistan and Iraq and, of course, Libya. They can't calmly forget about that and start dealing with a foe that at least is the kind of foe they used in the past. And this is why there's a kind of intractability about this in culturally, which I think is actually very worrying. And the people who are saying other things, like Sean himself, uh, Sean Howard, uh, they really are saying it from a very different perspective. Uh, the war itself, it's the old story, isn't it? That if war is the answer, it's a bloody stupid question. Uh, yeah. But we tend to forget that, it, understandably, because this phase of the war was instigated by Putin. But that is still the case, I'm afraid. Do you think winter could change the balance of forces, general winter, as it were? But because partly because of the energy crisis, which obviously is already biting, but in we're talking about a catastrophe in actually many Western countries. And you're already seeing the impact in terms of Germany, in terms of kind of basically energy rationing taking place. Obviously, Germany is particularly exposed compared to other Western European countries because of its uh, dependence on Russian gas, though it's been de desperately trying to shift that and pivot towards Norway and so on. But do you think, you know, Putin's gamble is basically the Western economies themselves going to scream there's going to be massive popular pressure within Western countries because people are feeling acute pain in terms of their living standards. And that might actually mean that the West will shift its strategy on Ukraine. I would have thought that is one of the thoughts, more than thoughts, at the back of his mind. It's part of the policy. So far, I think if you look at it dispassionately, it does not seem to be working. Um, and certainly I think this is counterbalancing uh, by the profits to be made out of the conflict on the Western side. So there'll be elements in Western countries that would be saying, we've got to go further. We've got to spend more money on defence because otherwise Russia will be the threat to the whole world. So that, some, to some extent, counterbalances it. So I'm not sure that that will work. Of course, it will be having other effects. The very fact that we have this huge energy crisis 
means there is going to be a much bigger push from an unexpected quarter towards much greater use, uh, use of renewables. Um, that, I, in a very in a paradoxical way, is actually desperately needed for completely different reasons. Mm. Uh, but in the short term, this winter, I think, is going to be very difficult. In those countries which have made a real mess of their economic planning, primarily the United Kingdom, I would say, it's going to be a very difficult year. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the trust uh, prime ministership actually progresses over the next six to nine months. Mind you, they're not very strong opposition. They may well get away with it, but we'll see about that again. That's very much a separate topic. Indeed. T Tad Cantwell asked, just like the US Civil War had elements of modern war like trenches, does this show how conflict will happen over the next 100 plus years? I I'm, I'm interested in this too, because, well, I, I remember there was this clip actually of Boris Johnson last uh, October talking about how ludicrous it would be that you would ever have basically tank warfare in Europe ever again. That, that was just belonged to a distant past. And actually, this is the type of war on European soil that we've not actually been accustomed to at all. I mean, we've had what happened to the Balkans, of course, horrific ethnic conflicts, but it's not really the same as kind of two major nations battling it across, you know, an, in, in a, a land war. So does this show actually that old style wars in European soil, certainly they didn't die a death. And, you know, this actually shows, as Tad says, how lots of conflicts will be fought. They didn't die the death. I, whether this is how lots of conflicts will be fought, I really don't know. I mean, if we talk about one or 200 years, well, we're not going to be around in 50 years in our current form unless we get global heating under control. We always, always have to remember that. If My own view, and I mean this again, we, we way, way beyond what we can talk about this morning, is that if you want an idea for what the world is going to be like, if we don't get a handle on a basically a seriously wonky economy and global heating, then we're going to see much more of what you might call revolts from the margins. Lots of anger on the margins. Uh, and by margins, I mean probably the majority of people. Because, you know, we're also in the era of runaway wealth. Uh, and that is becoming more and more obvious. You know, I mean, I was just watching something that uh, somebody put on YouTube this morning showing the, the huge gushing of sewage into... Uh, across a beach somewhere in southern Britain. This is a time when the uh, uh, basically the the water companies, their chiefs are earning million, two million pounds a year. That is getting through to the public, uh, really for the first time. It's one of the reasons why I think you're getting the unexpected support for the railway workers. People, I think, are waking up to the fact we have a very, very uh, basically malfunctioning economic system, and unilateral, basically neoliberalism has not gone away. And I think, if anything, in the longer term, it's going to be the combination of economic divisions and environmental constraints, plus a sort of predilection for finding military solutions, which will be the problems. All of those can be turned around, uh, but it's not going to be easy. And in the case of global heating, it has to be done very quickly. So I know a rambling answer to a very straight question. We will get elements of this kind of warfare, certainly the use of drones, changes in intelligence and the rest, and probably more use of special forces. I think it's possible that this kind of conflict with Russia may still be something of an exception. I hope very much I'm right on that. Just finally, and maybe this is a completely pointless question, but just answer however you deem fit. If you were a betting man, and it's the 20th of August, 2023, so a year from now, where, do you, where would you imagine that this conflict would be? Do you think given what you just said. I just, I'm just trying to see how that stalemate you've just 
proposes actually ever resolved. I just don't I don't, I don't see how it's possible to resolve it on those terms because it will always rebalance based on the West rebalancing it or Russia rebalancing it. I think it does very much depend on what will happen in Russia and whether Putin and people around him will say, I think it's time to call a halt. We will settle for something less than we hoped for. Uh, but that is the way things go. That is possible. Um, the uh, the risk of any kind of escalation, though, is still there because, as far as one can say, Putin still has this belief in the greater Russia heading an even greater Eurasia. Uh, so we're not out of the woods by a long shot. And I think the combination of that plus the predilection in Western communities to go to war, and we've seen that so much over the 20 years, that has simply gone away. It's possible, though, I really do believe this, that we might be starting to see some openings. And this is why I would go back partly what I say in the Open Democracy piece, even though it's very limited, the agreement over grain, I would not have expected that six weeks ago. And it looks yeah. like we might have a breakthrough on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So I think the thing is, there is some very limited room for optimism. And maybe that's a little bit better than where we were even six weeks ago. Yeah, I think given the gravity of the situation, I think a lot of people will grasp on those glimmers of hope as best they can. Paul, it's such an honour to always have you. Um, so thank you so much for sharing wisdom. And that was an absolute masterclass as ever in terms of where things actually stand in Ukraine. I know lots of us probably have, you know, stopped engaging as much with this issue as we should. Uh, but you get a grinding stalemate and it becomes, I suppose, quite difficult for people to, to keep their focus maintained for a long period of time. But And also, everyone, do make sure you read this article in uh, the in Open Democracy. It's insightful as ever it's just gone up uh, today as ukraine war drags on a grain export deal could be a sign of hope that's open democracy and paul writes very regularly for open democracy so make sure you check out all his previous work there as well cheers paul take care of yourself really appreciate it thanks Ben. thanks for having me bye take care always such an honor to have uh paul on someone i mean now he's off camera but uh i was embarrassing by putting out that i studied him uh as a teenager when i was at sixth form that's how i first came across paul rogers brilliant works so it's a huge honor to be able to to be able to have uh to be able to interview him at length on the horrors of of 2022 um but that was brilliant stuff as ever as i said this was very impromptu because um can't do can't do the show tomorrow so uh we just thought i didn't want to i didn't want to miss out this weekend and uh so we thought we'd do this very very quick impromptu show but on a very very important issue we have uh zara sultana i believe we're interviewing I hope so. Um, and Dave Ward uh, of the Communication Workers Union. Now, it's really important we talk to Dave Ward, but actually lots of reasons. Also, obviously, it's very important we talk to Zara as well, I should say. But the reason just talking about Dave at the moment is, um, you know, trade union leaders are obviously representatives of the biggest democratic movement in the country. And, uh, you know, they don't get the media representation they deserve. It's really important that we talk to them about industrial and political issues on behalf of their members. Uh, CWU are currently engaged in disputes at the moment uh, with Royal Mail, who are sending out some bizarre social media content, Royal Mail. They're trying to outsass CWU, and you can't outsass CWUs because their social media game is second to none. Um, so um, we need to talk to him about that, but we also need to talk to him about Enough is Enough, the new mass campaign, which CWU are one of the driving forces behind. So we're going to get on to that. I am very much looking forward to speak to him. Um, press, uh, sorry, if you're watching, do press like and subscribe. Oh, yeah, we're going to Labour and Tory conference. Tory conference are trying to rip us off by trying to force us to pay, I mean, vast sums of money to go. 
I'm just trying to work out what to do about it. Um, just morally, if anything. <laughs> um, but do support us. Oh, because we're doing, obviously, we're going to do documentaries about the impact of the cost of living crisis over the autumn. But we're going to Labour Conference. I haven't had my pass through for that, actually. <laughs> Why do they refuse my pass? Because I'd be so mean to Keir Starmer. Because he's not very good leader um so anyway but if you want to support us um because obviously our brilliant videographer we pay him union rates uh to do the brilliant work uh that he does on those documentaries i'm sure you i hope you all enjoyed the Tory docu- uh, documentary we did last year um not fun making it it looks might look fun not fun being 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 stuck into a body conference for periods of time even in manchester which is obviously pretty much my home turf uh we ran after lots of ministers um it was very silly including list trust actually i might play that clip at some point again because it's quite funny um it was surreal and bizarre the whole thing anyway uh so yeah do support us on patreon.com for slash joe's 84 um and we will make those videos i know lots of you can't at the moment afford to support us because of the cost of living crisis i can see that because of people explaining why they can't support support us anymore and i can understand that so only if you can and only whatever you can and um yeah hopefully we'll make labor the labor video will be really interesting i think um as well um for lots of reasons i want to see what's going on behind the scenes i want to know what the thoughts of labor mps are across the political spectrum i want to hear what the the members who were there and how much has shifted in terms of left-wing members ripping up their membership card so you'd expect i'm afraid from my perspective, uh, the Labour Party is moving to the right at quite a big, quite a fast speed. Um, yeah, so what we'll do is do that Tory party conference and videos about the cost of living crisis. Um, so yeah, do support us. As I said, we've we do our best to. Well, at the moment, it's been a bit of a tricky time, which I won't keep going on about. But um, we have lots of interviews coming up as well, as I've said. So everything's going to be great and fine. Um, Next Sunday, I'm actually in Germany, but we're going to pre-record something, so we'll have something next Sunday. But we'll just do it that way. Um, great. Okay, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Yeah, press like and subscribe. Leave some comments. Love, always love reading the comments. I'll try and respond to some more this time in the YouTube section. Obviously, the podcast. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, thank you so much as ever, and leave a review. Um, yeah, go and enjoy yourselves. Go and have some fun if you can. Take care of yourselves. It's a tricky time for lots of people, I know, but I hope you're all doing well. All right, lots of love. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.